the future of healthcare in the Biden administration. And I think healthcare is not a privilege, it's a right. People deserve to have affordable healthcare, period. If history is to be trusted, promises made as a candidate can be difficult to implement as a president. Case in point. What I'm going to do is pass Obamacare with a public option, become Bidencare. With a razor-thin majority in the Senate, bringing a public option to the floor may be difficult, as the only viable options may be the ones tolerated by the most moderate Democrat. On today's program, Healthcare in 2021, the policy and the politics, on the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. Hello, this is Hillary Clinton. I want to thank you for letting me speak with you about an issue that is central to our children's future and critical in our fight to restore this nation's economy, solving our nation's health care crisis. So because of this law, because of Obamacare, another 20 million Americans now know the financial security of health insurance. You have turned, Mr. President, the right of every American to have access to decent health care into reality for the first time in American history. They'll be able to buy, they'll be able to cross state lines, and they will get great competitive health care, and it will cost the United States nothing. Today's a big day. President Trump is doing what I believe is the biggest free market reform of health care in a generation. One of the issues that keeps most Americans up at night, regardless of who they vote for, is health care, and whether they have access to health care that they can afford. The Supreme Court on Monday announced it will take up a case seeking to overturn the Affordable Care Act, returning the health care law's fate to the high court. Your health care plan calls for building on Obamacare. So my question is, what is your plan if the law is ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court? What I'm going to do is pass Obamacare with a public option, become Bidencare. Who is he kidding? A public option is a socialist single-payer system by another name. The healthcare agenda in this country is huge and complicated and expensive. Accounting for nearly one out of every five GDP dollars, total annual healthcare spending in the U.S. is hovering right around $4 trillion. That's trillion with a T. That data comes from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. But does caring for people get lost in those big numbers? Does the individual in the bed and her family and their connections in a community, do they all get forgotten as soon as we start talking about trillions with a T? We hope not. But moving from aspiration to policy is not easy. Joining me now to talk about the political landscape that the Biden administration faces are two women with extraordinary experience tracking the politics of health care. Julie Robner is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News, where she also hosts the podcast, What the Health? Julie has been covering the politics of healthcare for close to 35 years. She and I worked together at NPR News, where she was the lead correspondent on countless healthcare stories. And prior to that, she was at National Journal and Congressional Quarterly. And she literally wrote the book about the politics of healthcare. 
Julie is the author of the definitive reference text, Healthcare, Politics and Policy, A to Z. Julie Robner joins us from her home in Kensington, Maryland. Julie, it's so good to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Also joining us now from her home in San Clemente, California, is Ali Santori, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs and Social Responsibility for Providence, where she works to preserve and expand access to care for the underserved, positioning Providence as a leading advocate for mental health, advanced care planning, and the strengthening of the Medicaid program. Earlier in her career, Allie worked on Capitol Hill as a legislative assistant to Senator Gordon Smith, the last Republican to represent Oregon in the Senate, and on the staff of the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging during Senator Smith's tenure as both chairman and ranking member. Allie Santori, thank you for being with us today. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Very excited for our conversation today. Uh, I am too. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I want to say that we're recording this conversation on Monday, January 11th. We've been through a tumultuous week, and there's really no telling how things may change in Washington between the time we record the podcast and the time that you listen to it. So if you hear one of us say something that feels slightly out of sync with current events, you might consider the lag time that we're facing. We will do our best to keep the podcast up to date, but alas, podcasting is not live broadcasting. So there's lots to talk about, the Affordable Care Act, the CDC, the pandemic, but let's begin in the Senate. The people of Georgia had the incredible role of deciding whether Democrats would control both houses of Congress and the White House, and they narrowly, by the squeakiest of razor-thin margins, voted to send Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to the Senate and tip control to the Democrats. But Julie Robner, this doesn't give the Democrats a blank check, does it? No, it's like marginal control. Technically, the Senate will be divided 50-50 because the vice president, as of January 20th, will be Kamala Harris. She would be able to break a tie. That gives the Democrats the chairmanships of committees and the majority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer. But the last time there was a 50-50 Senate in 2001 after uh, George W. Bush became president, um, there was a basically a power sharing agreement that was struck between the majority leader and the mi- minority leader. That's effectively what we're expecting now. Um, that obviously hasn't happened yet because since the, uh, since the Georgia results came in, a lot of other things have happened in the Senate and in Washington, D.C. So we're expecting to see how this all works out. But, you know, it's entirely possible that the committees will have the same number of Democrats as Republicans, which will make things hard to get through. Um, not, not, I will say, a whole lot happened in early 2001. Uh, there was a, a party switch, which did it give the Democrats? Now I can't even remember. I think he gave the Republicans power in 2001. But it wasn't, uh, it was not 50-50 for very long. So we've never actually had this in the modern era for, you know, more than six months. We'll have to sort of see how it shakes out. It's an interesting point that you make. It's not just final votes in the Senate, but committee business that will get this razor thin treatment as well. That's right. And, you know, so so it, it, once again, everything will be determined from the middle. The, the most conservative Democrats and the most liberal Republicans um, will sort of decide who the majority is going to be. Allie, from your experience um, on staff at a committee, what 
what do you think that's going to look like? Sean, you mentioned the the business of the Senate and um, the business of the Senate is about 90% of what goes on behind the scenes versus the votes on the floor. And that business of the Senate is slow and methodical and deliberative uh, as it, as it should be. And it's going to go back to that. And one of the things that we're looking forward to um, at Providence is, is government being boring again, <laughs> because uh, that slow pace, uh, you know, these are, these are policies that are, deli- uh, that are debated in the Senate um, that impact millions, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans. And so it should go slow. There should be debate and deliberation around these policies. So, you know, I've worked in the minority in the Senate. I've worked in the majority in the Senate. Um, I will tell you that in the House is major- is very strong majority rule. It's a very strong majority uh, rule of law over there. The Senate, individual senators still have a great deal of power to influence legislation. So what changes, especially in a closely divided office, is when you're in the minority, you don't have as nice offices. You don't have uh, (laughs) control over the Senate calendar in terms of what comes to the floor, um, what topics get hearings. That's the the true narrative around health care policy is going to be placed in the hands of the the Democrats in terms of what policies they can bring to light, either in the hearing process or votes taken on the floor, but they're going to need their Republican colleagues to move any sort of policy forward. What strikes me as well is that it's not just between the two parties where cooperation and compromise uh, will rule the day, but within the Democrats themselves, uh, the most conservative Democrat suddenly has more power than anyone else in, in the entire body. That's certainly the case. There are going to be certain kingmakers in the Senate. If you look at the Lisa Murkowski's of the world as a moderate Republican and the Joe Manchin's of the world from West Virginia as a, a moderate Democrat. But then you also have the committee chairs and, and the chairmanships of those committees and those roles, especially the committees that determine uh, mandatory spending programs for healthcare like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, that's going to be incredibly powerful. Um, committee and, uh, ships that determine the future of the FDA and FDA regulatory policy, that's going to be incredibly powerful. So I would say that the new power bench in the Senate is to be uh, those certain committee chairs of the Finance Committee, the Help Committee, and then also those moderate members on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, actually, one of the single most powerful senators is going to be Patty Murray, who will not only become chairman of the Senate Help Committee, but she chairs the Appropriations Subcommittee that does the spending bill for the Department of Health and Human Services. So she gets to both authorize and appropriate, uh, or she gets to determine a lot of what gets authorized and appropriated when it comes to health, um, which is, uh, it's not unprecedented. I remember it happening a couple of times in the past, but it's pretty unusual. I mean, in the House, that wouldn't happen. The appropriators don't sit on any authorizing committees, but in the Senate, because there's only 100 senators and they're not, they they have to sit on a lot of committees. Um, it's it's pretty rare to have the, the head authorizer also be the head appropriator. So much in the last generation has been accomplished through executive order. I'm wondering, Julie, if you have a sense of what will be undone that Mr. Trump put in place? What should we look forward to in terms of a Biden agenda being played out by executive order? So there's sort of three different 
layers of executive power. The executive order is the one that the president can just do by himself. Um, it can be undone as easily as it can be done. So I would look for incoming President Biden to undo a lot of those executive orders. And there are actual formal regulations that have to go through, that went through a formal regulatory process and will have to go through the same process to be undone. And then there's sort of sub-regulatory guidance, um, which can be very important. Um, and it will also need to be sort of carefully undone. But, you know, one of the things that tends to happen early that President Biden can't undo everything that Trump did in four years in his first week, which I know a lot of people would be looking forward to. Um, you have to do this sort of methodically. There will be messaging involved. There are legal issues involved. There are people who actually need to draft these things involved. Um, but I will point out that um, Inauguration Day is January 20th. Uh, January 22nd is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade uh, abortion ruling from the Supreme Court. Traditionally, when the uh, White House changes hands. In fact, every time since the 1980s, the White House changes parties, the president either does or undoes a series of abortion-related executive actions. So we would expect that to happen on the on the 22nd. These are what are, are commonly known as the Mexico City rule? Yes, there there can be there are others too, but the main one is the Mexico City policy that um, limits US funding to international family planning organizations that uh, basically support abortion. It's the technical term is per perform or promote abortion. Um, interestingly, there is now a domestic uh, ban, a similar ban called the gag rule, um, but that was done by regulation and it will have to be undone by regulation. Another annual tradition right around that is the March for Life that happens right after inauguration. And I'll be wondering, you know, I would think that that would not happen in terms of mass gatherings, but some on the right have uh, proven their desire to still gather. So it'll be interesting to see if that coalition descends on DC. Allie, what else should we be looking for uh, in terms of executive action in terms of the um, healthcare agenda? Um, you know, well, one thing that really differentiates Providence from other healthcare constituencies is our commitment to not only healthcare delivery, but social justice. So from our perspective, uh, there will be several executive actions that we have opposed for the last four years and actively lobbied against related to immigration, related to climate change. So for us at Providence, those are equally as important as some of the healthcare specific executive orders and actions that will take place under the incoming Biden administration. When it comes to climate change, the uh, Biden administration has made it clear that they will be rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, potentially on day one of the new administration. And the Paris Climate Accord is an international agreement entered into under the Obama administration that commits countries across the globe to reducing their carbon emissions by 50% over a 10-year period. At Providence, we're taking that one step further. We're strong supporters of the Paris Climate Accord and then challenge ourselves to go even further. And we've committed to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by 101% to become carbon negative by 2030. So we're strong supporters of the United States re-entering the Paris Climate Accord. The Biden administration will put back into place dozens and dozens of regulations that were rolled back under the Trump administration. So I think the first phase that we'll see for the uh, climate agenda under Biden is actually just making up the four years that we lost. And you also mentioned immigration. What are you expecting to see? You know, Providence is a firm believer um, in the concept that health is a human right. Um, and we particularly advocate for that for populations that are marginalized. Um, and we have seen our immigrant communities 
uh, extremely marginalized under the Trump administration. So specific policies like the public charge rule, which takes into account um, an individual's immigration status when they apply for public programs like the Medicaid program. So this we anticipated would have a significant chilling effect uh, um, on those applying for federal benefits and even a lot of misinformation and fear around deportation if one was to apply for even legal immigrants if they were to apply for um, public benefits. So the public charge rule is a big one that we are looking forward to being pulled back. Um, also the travel ban, which is one of the first policies instated under the Trump administration and in January 20, uh, 2017, uh, we're looking to the Biden administration rescinding the travel ban. Um, and then also, you know, we had worked uh, diligently to ensure that there was a comprehensive count within our communities of immigrant families for the census. Um, that sort of work is going to now be, the census has included their counting, but that the, uh, the application of that census data is going to be handed over to the Biden administration. So how immigrant communities are counted within that census data is going to be incredibly important. So that's another issue that we're tracking. Excellent. Let's talk about Obamacare for a minute. In November of last year, the Supreme Court heard arguments in California v. Texas, the challenge to the Affordable Care Act originally brought by 18 states led by Texas and defended by 21 other states led by California. The court is expected to rule by the summer. So, but where does this stand now that um, there is a change in the administration given that the federal government wasn't a party to the case originally? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the federal government doesn't have a lot of say right now in what happens to this case because federal government was not originally a party. It was a, it was uh, attorneys general, a couple of governors from Republican states um, suing uh, to say that the that Congress, when it passed the tax bill in 2017, zeroing out the individual mandate left the uh, the law unconstitutional because the ACA was originally upheld in 2012 uh, with a decision that was written by Chief Justice Roberts saying that it was a tax. And they said, if you take the tax to zero, there's no tax. And therefore, the entire law is unconstitutional. And they went forum shopping and they found themselves a judge um, who agreed with them. And which was not a surprise because he had he had also uh, he he was known to be sympathetic to this cause. It went to the Court of Appeals uh, in the Fifth Circuit, who said, "We think the judge might be right that it's now unconstitutional, but we're not real comfortable with striking down the entire law." They sent it actually back to the lower court judge for him to take a closer look, as they said, at what of the law could be spared that wasn't directly connected to the uh, uh, to the to the requirement, the mandate for people to have insurance. Uh, and before that could happen, the Democratic attorneys general who had intervened to defend the law because the Trump administration declined to do that. Originally, that these uh, these Republican attorneys general sued the Trump administration, um, but the Trump administration said, we're not going to support the law right. in its entirety. So the Democrats had intervened and the Democrats went to the Supreme Court and said, look, this is creating just way too much uncertainty for the entire healthcare system. You really need to resolve this now. And by now, they wanted the Supreme Court to actually resolve it last year before last June. And the Supreme Court said, eh, we'll hear the case, but we don't really think we need to hear it right away. So we'll hear it in the fall. And that's how it came to be heard in November. Now, from everything 
we heard in the arguments in November, it sounds like the Supreme Court is not buying what the Republican attorneys general are selling. Um, there's, there's every reason. I mean, most legal scholars, including a lot of conservative legal scholars who had fought the Affordable Care Act wars on other grounds, said that this lawsuit was basically a nuisance suit and really didn't have any legal merit. Um, that would seem to be the case, even in this more you know conservative Supreme Court. But you can't always tell what right. the Supreme Court is going to do by how the oral arguments go. I mean, it would appear that the, the law would be upheld, but we don't actually know that. And as I said, the, there's limited power for the incoming Biden administration to change that. There might be a little more power. The uh, Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case uh, challenging the Medicaid work requirements uh, to which the Trump administration is a party and the Biden administration could in theory make that go away, although that won't be very easy either. The court has not yet heard. In fact, they've not yet scheduled the arguments for that. So it's a little bit easier for them to intervene in that one than it is for the new administration to intervene in the Affordable Care Act case. Yeah, so Julie, I have a path forward that I just mapped out in my brain and would love your your thoughts. So, I mean, I, I share your opinion that I think that the lawsuit was a long shot from the start, you know, based on the oral arguments. It, it doesn't seem that there is an appetite to strike down the entire law. Um, if, if that does happen, which I think is very unlikely, um, I think Congress could even act before the decision or after the decision to pass some sort of nominal tax for the mandate or nominal fee for the mandate, which then reinstates that tax that was established by Justice Roberts in 2012 that you mentioned, and then sort of obliterates the case that the, that the state's attorneys general have, the Republican state's attorneys general. So they, they could, in theory, they could put in a nominal fee, fee but um, that would need 60 votes. And if they wanted to do it via the budget reconciliation process that only needs 51 votes, they'd have to do a budget resolution first. There have been suggestions that I've seen that perhaps a nominal fee wouldn't pass the bird rule, which is a requirement for budget reconciliation because it would be nominal. It wouldn't have very small effect on the federal budget. So, and it has to be the, the requirement for budget reconciliation is it has to be more than nominal. So maybe they'd have to put a bigger fee on it. They could, Congress could cure this. Congress could more easily probably just strike the entire requirement. The, one of the arguments in the lawsuit is that now there's a requirement what they what it used to say is that there you had to either have health insurance or pay a penalty of X, and Congress reduced that to zero. So now it says you either have to have health insurance or pay a penalty of zero. And they're trying to construe it as saying, well, now you have to have health insurance. Like, no, you have to have health insurance or pay a zero penalty. But they can't take out the part about. I mean, Congress could pass a law just eliminating the mandate, which would which is ineffectual right now anyway, but they also couldn't do that under budget reconciliation. Right. Otherwise, the Republicans would have done that because they passed their tax bill through budget mm -hmm. reconciliation. So no matter what, unless the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, which I don't think they can do with their 50 plus one votes, um, they would need 60 votes to do this. I was going to just do a quick glossary on some terms really quick. You know, Julie and I have both, Julie is an, uh, a legend on Capitol Hill, and we've, we've both spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. So just for the listeners, uh, a quick breakdown of some of the terms that we're using. Uh, your reconciliation is a process by which the Senate can bypass their 60 vote threshold and, and pass legislation with only 51 votes, which that's the Democrats' only opportunity to move things with their majority. 
uh, budget reconciliation is guarded by uh, many arcane Senate budget rules. One of them is known as the Byrd Rule, named after West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd, that any um, provision within the reconciliation package needs to have an impact, a fiscal impact on the budget, either positive or negative. So when we were talking before about a nominal fee, not that would mean a nominal fiscal impact, uh, that would not be able to be included on, in a budget reconciliation package. So right. the, the budget reconciliation is the Democrats' ticket to freedom when it comes to policymaking, but they have to get creative in how they shape those policies and that legislation because it has to fit into these very arcane Senate budget rules. Look, you can make a career out of trying to understand what goes on on Capitol Hill. In fact, I know two people that I'm looking at on this Zoom call who have done just that, made a career of trying to understand this. But for the rest of us, are entirely possible that our eyes start to glaze over as soon as the details come out onto the table. With that in mind, I do want to say that there are some hugely popular parts of the ACA that were they to disappear would really send a shot across families' lives. I'm thinking of things like a guarantee of coverage, even if you have a pre-existing condition, or banning limits on lifetime spending for uh, health coverage. Uh, these are really popular provisions that the ACA put in place. And if they were to go away, people would really feel that. Sean, it's even more serious than that. You're right, people would. But if the ACA were to go away in its entirety, particularly if it was just to be struck down by the Supreme Court, it would throw the entire healthcare system into chaos. Um, the Affordable Care Act was much, much larger than just the very popular things. It created new payment systems for most of the, the you know, for hospitals and nursing homes and, and many providers. Um, it created programs to help train healthcare workers. It created a pathway for generic expensive biologic drugs would those drugs suddenly cease to be approved if there was no uh no gateway for them anymore i mean it would it would really cause an enormous amount of dislocation even beyond the political dislocation of getting rid of things that are that are supremely popular you have the impact of wiping out insurance coverage for about 25 million people um, and then even more who are covered under the Medicaid expansion uh, overnight. I mean, it's politically unpalpable. So I, I don't care if lawmakers don't like the ACA, that's not a political path forward for them. And, and they know that. And if you look at the Senate map, you know, once, once one election stops, the next election immediately begins. <laughs> when you look at the Senate map in 2022, Republicans have a lot of seats that they need to hold on to. Right. So they're not going to be in a position where they want to take away health insurance for tens of millions of people, especially at a time. You know, I predict that the um, debate over affordability is, is going to become all that much louder in 2021, given the state of the economy. We're talking about the political landscape for health care. Under the new administration, my guests are Ali Santori, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs and Social Responsibility for Providence and Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a minute. Stay with us.
You're listening to the Hear Me Now podcast coming to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. As 2021 unfolds, we'll be taking a number of opportunities to talk about nursing with nurses. These are programs that we have planned to coincide with um, WHO's extended year of the nurse and midwife. Subscribe to the Hear Me Now podcast to be sure that you'll know about these special episodes as they're produced. Look for the Hear Me Now podcast wherever you get your audio on demand. We're talking about the political landscape for healthcare in 2021 with Ali Santori, who heads government affairs for Providence, and Julie Robner, chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. One of the cultural impacts of the past four years has been a noticeable increase in the distrust of science and scientific method, especially in the area of public health. And absurdly, this happened against a backdrop of a worldwide pandemic. What can be done to return institutions like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to a place of trust? How can how can science be depoliticized in the years ahead? So I, I have a couple of ideas. One of the reasons I think specifically that the CDC found themselves ill-positioned to handle the pandemic is uh, really an issue that impacted every agency under the Trump administration. Uh, there are about 4,000 political appointees that a president comes to appoint when they come into office. Uh, the majority of those positions were left open in almost all Trump agencies. I think Julie can confirm this, but we had the, the, the lightest staff of a federal government in, in recent history. So the CDC and other public health agencies didn't have the staffing that they needed to make the right decisions and create the right messaging at the early stages of the, of the pandemic. I think that the consistency in messaging coming from the executive office is going to be absolutely critical. We had different messaging uh, actually by the hour from the Trump administration, which sowed a lot of that distrust. So I think consistency, and I think that uh, a full set of competent staff at the agencies will help uh, shore up this trust. And I think you know the, the Biden administration has made a very big promise of the first 100 days in office and how many uh, shots they are uh, aiming to get into arms, that's going to be a big test and a big, a big trust hurdle for the American people. So I think it's a gamble on their part in terms of right out of the gate, how much the American people can trust uh, that they'll do what they say they're going to do and that they've organized the administration in a way to do that. You know, I've been kind of saying all year that this is that a pandemic is a time when the public needs to trust its government and trust science uh, more than anything else. And the Trump administration has basically spent four years trying to undermine the trust in both of those things. So the fact that we're not doing well as a country and as a society with the pandemic shouldn't be all that surprising, given that. Um, but there are a number of problems. Uh, a, a lot of scientists were basically run out of our health agencies. Uh, many of them were of the age to retire and did. Uh, many others of them just decided they didn't want to work for an administration that was basically overtly anti-science. So they left. So the Biden administration is coming in with not only this enormous uh, hurdle to overcome, but with, as Ali says, not very much, you know, it, I, I'm, we're not even talking about the political appointees. We're talking about the career staff that normally right. executes all of these policies. The career staff has been hollowed out at a lot of these agencies, and they're going to have to try to rebuild that. And that can't happen overnight. 
Allie, how is the pandemic response going from your point of view? You know, Providence has been on the front line longer than any health system in the United States fighting the pandemic. So January 20th will mark not only Joe Biden's inauguration, but it will also mark the year anniversary that the first COVID positive patient in the United States was admitted to the hospital. And that was Providence Hospital in Everett, Washington. So we have been on the front lines for a year. Uh, we have leaned on the learnings of our uh, colleagues across our health system across seven states uh, to share best practices, to share knowledge, to share resources. So I, I, I couldn't be more proud of, of my colleagues on the front lines, my colleagues um, in clinical leadership who have been driving our response. But Providence's response, I think, is truly a bright spot uh, across the country. Um, and, and it has not been easy and the teams are tired and they're exhausted, but I see them uh, taking all of their efforts and putting that right now into vaccine distribution mm -hmm. across our seven states. So their work continues and, and they see the light at the end of the tunnel and we're gonna continue to push forward. Looking back on this year behind us, the pandemic obviously stands out, but the murder of George Floyd also stands out in my memory as being a, a huge marker during the course of the year. And one of the things that has impressed me is how healthcare organizations have spent part of this last year drilling down into the issue of, of implicit bias and racism in medicine. You see it in medical schools, you see it in hospitals, you see it in individual practices. When we talk about things like social uh, determinants to health, this last year has seen a lot of thinking and talking and strategizing. And I'm wondering, as we begin 2021, when you look back on 2020, where have you seen successes in that regard? Where do you see us going in the year ahead? I think one of the, our opportunities for hope in the year ahead is a, a bipartisan commitment to address, addressing health disparity and health equity. Um, at least I would, I would hope so. Um, at Providence, we are taking that head on. We've dedicated $50 million to addressing health disparities within our patient population and our health plan population. So we have a team led by Dr. Rhonda Meadows who's leading that work. We're also looking internally at our caregiver population and addressing health equity and diversity and inclusion within that caregiver population. And then we are also looking beyond our patients, beyond our, our caregivers uh, to our community. So how do we help ensure that we are instilling equitable lenses on our advocacy policies? So we will, for our 2021 advocacy agenda, be leading our advocacy agendas across our states and in DC with a, health, with a commitment to health equity, a health equity pledge, that we will be advancing policies that address the systemic causes of racism and that address health disparities in our communities. Um, so not only will we be advocating for the you know, provider reimbursement and some of the things that we, uh, that we perennially do on our advocacy agendas, but we're gonna have a strong focus on, uh, on health equity. And we're looking at that across every aspect of our organization from our supply chain to how we source our food, to how we treat our patients and engage with them and then how we engage with our communities. You know, I was actually on a call with a public health expert last week who said, you know, why don't we just declare racism a public health threat? Um, you know, we talk about health inequities and, you know, lots of sort of academic sounding words and structural racism. But if we were to actually look at racism 
as a public health problem, I think that could really spur some more action. I mean, I imagine we will see it as tragic as last summer felt. Um, it certainly did a lot to raise awareness of, you know, systemic problems that have been in our society all along that we just kept pushing to the back burner. It's like, oh yeah, that's important. We'll get to it. Um, I would like to think that it has been brought way up on the national agenda. Yeah, and Julie, I'll add that Providence has declared racism to be a public health crisis. So we are firmly in that camp and then taking the steps that we can, that we can both internally and externally to address that. Can we talk more broadly about hope in the time that we have left? The last year has been a brutal one. The traumas literally began to mount on one another as the months wore on. There's been an unprecedented demand on behavioral health services across the country. And I don't want to underplay the part that social change plays in people's uncertainty about our shared futures. Um, what's giving the two of you hope? If, if you asked me two weeks ago, I would have said that the calendar is going to turn to 2021, but yeah. we're here and things not much better for right now. I mean, obviously the existence of a vaccine, although the vaccine rollout is not going smoothly, um, but but one would one would hope that this pandemic will end at some point and we'll be able to sort of start to heal. And I mean that emotionally, financially. Um, you know, in every other possible way that uh, the thing, things are going to have to get better. So I would echo what Julie said, that um, our hope is that 2021 is a year of healing. And I think, unfortunately, we had to hit rock bottom, which I hope was at the Capitol as a nation, um, and that we can begin to move forward. For us at Providence, we have a great deal of hope around the possibilities of advancing a, a social justice policy agenda. So some of the things I mentioned related to environmental stewardship, uh, related to immigration, um, and then also the work that we're doing internally on health equity. Um, you know, the Biden administration has made it clear that they are going to extend an equity lens on their COVID response. So I am hopeful that our marginalized communities and our communities of color will receive more support and more recognition than they have over the last four years. So those are a couple of things that I'm hopeful for. Well, I'm grateful for the two of you taking the time to share your insight with us today. Ali Santori is Senior Vice President of Government Affairs and Social Responsibility for Providence. Julie Robner is Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thank you both for taking the time to help us understand the landscape that lies ahead of us. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Julie. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, I said that the healthcare agenda in this country is huge and complicated. And even if we had three hours today, I think we'd still feel like we're only scratching the surface. But we're lucky to have Julie and Allie as our guides. If you want to dig deeper into their work with them, we've included links on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. There's a lot to explore, including a really helpful overview of healthcare issues that Julie put together leading up to the election, and a smart piece on the great undoing, how executive orders and other actions can be changed by the new administration. 
And there's a link to the Providence Community Partnership website where Allie's advocacy work is highlighted along with some of her blog posts. Again, you'll find links at hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web at instituteforhumancaring.org. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Amazon Music, Spotify, among many others. In the weeks ahead, we're planning shows about the behind the scenes work that's being done during the pandemic and the mounting rates of hospitalizations and the toll that takes on caregivers. Our oral history stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. We have research help from medical librarians, including Heather Martin, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, and Amanda Schwartz. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well. <laughs>